Good morning. We're going to do things just a little bit different this morning. Uh, we uh, are definitely going to worship uh, with music. That's important. And um, we had a great time uh, this morning and last night both. We'll have a great time again. But I'm actually going to start with a little bit of a, of a message this morning to kind of lead us into worship. Sometimes we think that, that worship is to lead us into the teaching, but, but the, the worship is, is good in its own right. And today I actually want to challenge us a little bit and, and help prepare our hearts and lead us into the, to the music time this morning. Um, we have been talking, so we're going to jump right into part two this morning. Last week was part one, Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse. And we talked about how the world is full of walking dead. Uh, people who uh, don't know life because Paul says that apart from Christ, the, the gift of the gospel is not just eternal life, but it's life. And so the world is full of walking dead. And so we talked about we do more than survive the zombie apocalypse, which we're actually called to do is actually to introduce life, is to, is to bring life into the, the zombie apocalypse. And that's why this is called So Life, this message this morning. And one of the things we talked about, it says, you are the salt of the earth. We, we shared a story just really quickly at the end, which I'm going to review. Uh, we shared a story uh, about Elisha. We talked about how the people came to Elisha and said, we have this spring and everything around this water is dead. This water is no good. And so everything's dead. And Elisha said, bring me a bowl with salt in it. And he poured that into the, the water. And then the water became life-giving and everything around it was fruitful. And the author of uh, First Kings there says that, to this day, nothing is barren in that area. And when you think about that story carefully, it actually makes no sense at all. Because putting salt water into a freshwater spring will not make it healthier. That isn't generally the way that works. Not to mention that the amount of salt he put in should have had a negligible effect. So what really happened, and it's very clear in the story, is God healed the water. But he chose to do it through the salt. And we talked about how Jesus says to the church, you are the salt of the earth. And we talked about how the church brings life to the culture around us. And we may ask why. Why would God use the church? And does that really make any sense? But it's because God chooses to do it that way. And so that's where we kind of were as we were talking about the zombie apocalypse. We were talking about our role as a church to sow life. Just to review very quickly, just to, to remind you where we were. Number one, we talked about the church alone has God-given authority for some things. There are some things that only the church can do. We have a tendency culturally to think of our church as largely powerless, largely irrelevant. Uh, and yet there are some things that only the church can do, and we're going to get into detail about that today. We talked about this authority is lived out practically in committed local gatherings. It doesn't do any good for you to think of the church as just this esoteric large entity if you don't recognize that where the nuts and bolts of what the church can do is done in Paragon, is done in the local community, the local gathering. There's a, a verse, Jesus says, that where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with them. We often quote that as being about prayer. But in fact, that verse is about authority. It talks about the authority that comes from two or three being gathered together uh, in the name of Jesus. We talked about God's chosen instrument to restore order is the church. In Ephesians, it talks about how ultimately the goal is to bring everything under the headship of Christ. Everything. In heaven and on earth, the whole universe under the headship of Christ. And he talks about how the church is an integral part of that. We are part of that restoration of order. Now I know and you know that that ultimately will not happen until the Lord returns and sets it all right. And yet, right now, the church is to be doing that. We are giving a taste to the culture of what it's like to see things under the headship of Christ, of how good it is and how right it is and how just it is and how beautiful it is. And that is a lot of what the church is to do. We are the instrument to do that. And that's when we talked about, as we closed last week, that where Christ walks, life blooms, and where we bring Christ, life blooms. 
So if you think through the Gospels as, as Matt's been going through them, we see that where Christ walks, life does bloom. And the same is true of the church, that we bring that to people. So that's what we talked about. And then right at the end, I gave you a teaser of a couple of things I was going to talk about this week. And that's what I want to talk about leading into our, our music this morning, is I want to share with you those two things and expand on them a little bit. Because the first thing is that what happens is when we start seeing the church as this amazing instrument of God's to change the culture, to bring life to, to everywhere, to, to people through Christ, to their marriages, to the culture itself, to culture, to art, everything, that the church can actually bring life to it, we sometimes then end up in the place where we think the goal of the church is to change culture, that that's our responsibility. But that isn't exactly it. Because the good things that the church can do in a culture, a lot of other people can do. There's a lot of good things we do that we should do. We build hospitals, we set up orphanages, we adopt kids. We should do all that. And yet those are things that people outside of the church can also do. Those aren't the one thing that we're called to do. And so one of the things I mentioned was this, that when it comes to the church being God's instrument, we need to recognize that God wields the sword, we merely sharpen the blade. And here's what I mean by this. What I mean is that there's a weird thing that happens. God says that the instrument that he wants to use to bring life to the world is the church. But he says that our job as a church is not to do that. Our job is simply to become that instrument for God and to be it effectively. There's a really interesting verse in Ephesians that goes on, and this is where it actually describes what the one thing that only the church can do, what it is. It says, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. See all those, those points in red there that the, what the church does is it builds itself up this is a very unusual thing. It's as if God said, the church will be my instrument to reveal myself to the world. We are the body of Christ. The church will be my instrument to do this, but the church needs to be built up and the church's job is to build itself into that instrument. If I had a hammer and I wanted to, to build something with that hammer, it would be strange if I, if I said to the hammer, you need to make yourself into a hammer first. You need to Build yourself into a hammer that's useful for me to use. That would be odd. And yet that's what God does in the church. He says that your job, the one thing that you can do that nobody else can do is build the church, is build up the church. Build us all into maturity till we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There is not another organization in the universe, nor is there an individual that can accomplish this, of attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. If I were to ask you guys, and I don't want you to raise your hand because it would be embarrassing, but if I were to ask you guys who this morning has attained to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, I assume that nobody would raise their hand. And those of you that did, I would be concerned about. But as a church, as a community, this is what we're called to do, is attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And the church's job is to build itself up as each part does its work. And here's what you have to understand about that each part. That's you. That's you. As each part does its work, the disciples are made, the church is built up, we build each other up, we all reach this fullness and maturity. That means it is not Pastor Matt's job to build the church and make disciples. It is not Jerome's job to build the church and make disciples. It's not whoever's speaking on a given Sunday morning's job to build the church and make disciples. We all have parts to play in that, 
so do you. Each part does its work. There isn't room, there's no wiggle room in in Scripture and in verses like this to say, I don't have anything to offer. Not so. We're told that that maturity, that building up happens as each part does its work. That's what the church's job is, is to make disciples, is to build each other up, to build that church up so that we reflect that life so that we can bring Christ to people. Not just with the words, but with who we are. And that's why what becomes important is that our goal is not primarily about doing something. When you think of what Paragon's goal or any church's goal is, it's not first and foremost to do. As I mentioned, all the things we do can be done elsewhere. They may not be done as well, or they may, but they can be done elsewhere. But what cannot be done elsewhere is to build the church up, to become. Our job is to become that instrument, that weapon, to build each other up till we reach that maturity, and we become, in Christ's hand, that tool to change and to bring life to people, to sow life throughout the world. So our job is not to do, but to become, and then to stop hiding. I'm going to step down for a second because I want to get closer to you as I make this next point. The, the lights may or may not hit me right. It's okay. You can still hear me. There's a verse in Romans 12 which is really telling, and this is what I want to read, and this is the challenge I want to give you as we go into music here in just a little bit. I want to give you this challenge uh, even to be thinking about as we worship. Romans 12 says, therefore. Now, that therefore, I have a friend who always says, find out what the therefore is therefore. And so you look back over the, the chapter before and you find out what's he referring to. And I think in the case of Romans that the, he's actually referring to the entire 11 chapters leading up to it. Because the entire 11 chapters leading up to it are all about what the gospel is and how, how we are and who we are and the mercy of God and the grace of God. And then he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, keeping that in mind, being mindful, literally, of God's mercy, holding that in your mind's eye, In view of that, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It's interesting, he says a couple of interesting things here. First of all, he says living sacrifice. The problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps wanting to crawl off the altar. It's much easier to be a dead sacrifice. Let's be honest. A dead sacrifice happens once and then you're done. You've made your sacrifice, it's over. But God calls us to be a living sacrifice, which means day by day by day by moment by moment by moment. We have to keep getting on that altar. You don't get to say one day, hey, I offered my body yesterday. We're good. No, it's a living sacrifice. It happens over and over. Second thing is he says, offer your bodies. That's very specific. He wants to get again away from that esoteric idea of just, hey, I've given my life to Christ. No, your life is in many ways, you know, it has all these little circumstances and days and moments in it. Have you given each of those to Christ? Well, you don't know yet because they haven't happened yet. (laughs) So you have to continually be offering your body as that living sacrifice. Your body, it's what you do, it's what you speak, it's what you, your vocal cords and your hands and your feet and and the behaviors you you commit. This is the, the living sacrifice you offer day after day after day. It's very mundane. And yet this is what it is. He goes on, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Just a couple quick thoughts on this. He says, do not, be, do not conform. That word conform literally is the word masquerade. In the Greek, it means to wear a mask. It's the same word that Paul uses when he says, even an angel of light, even Satan, pardon me, even Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And so what it's really saying is here, stop pretending. Stop wearing a mask and pretending that you are a part of this world. By the blood of Christ, we've been made holy and pleasing to God. 
We've been made righteous. We are new creatures, like that video that we showed this morning before I came up. We've been made new creations. And Paul says, quit pretending that you're still the same old person you were. Quit wearing that mask. It doesn't mean pretending to be something you're not. We sometimes think that when it says don't conform, we have to start pretending we're better than that. But this is the opposite. It says stop pretending to be part of the world when you no longer are. Then he says be transformed. That word transform is also used elsewhere in Scripture. It's in the Gospels where Jesus, he takes Peter and James and John and he goes up on top of a mountain. And it says he is transformed. It's transfigured is how we sometimes translate it. His appearance changes and his clothes become white. And it's such an amazing, startling thing, as well as the fact that he starts talking to Moses and Elijah, who come down to join him, that Peter and James and John realize that what's happening is they are seeing Jesus for who he really is. They suddenly see that he's God. And they freak out. They're blown away by this. And when they come back down off the mountain later, Jesus says to them, he puts back on the mask of humanity, and he says to them, don't tell anybody, it's not time yet. Which is a rough thing to tell someone who's just seen that. But he says, don't tell anybody, it's not time yet. So what happens is Jesus removes this mask of humanity and shows who he truly is. Now, we are human. We are not God. But we are new creations. And Paul says to us the same words. He says, stop wearing a mask and pretending you're part of the world. And instead, let the world see what God has done. Let them see what an amazing creation he has wrought in you. So you offer your body as a living sacrifice. You stop pretending to be part of the world. And you'll be transformed to reveal who you are. How? By the renewing of your mind. Let God change your mind. Let him reveal to you who he is, who you are, who the world is. This is what he says. And then he goes on and says this. Then. That's a chronological marker, right? It means this happens after the things we talked about. He says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Problem is, we want to jump to the end of this process. There's a process here. We want to jump to the end of it without having gone through the things proceeding then. We want to say, tell me what your will is, God, and then I will offer my body as a living sacrifice. Tell me what's going to entail, and then I will not conform. Tell me what, my, what I need to look like, and then I will be transformed. But that's not how it works. He says, offer your body as a living sacrifice to God. And why would you do that, not knowing what God's will is? In view of God's mercy. Trusting that God is good enough. He doesn't ask you to be stupid about it. He says, trusting that God is better than you think he is and as good as you dare to hope. Trusting in his mercy. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice unconditionally. And you can't do it once. (laughs) Over and over. And stop pretending to be part of the world but reveal who you actually are by letting God change your mind and change your convictions. And then, then, you'll be able to test and improve what God's will is. As I make this last point, I'm going to have the music team come on up behind me as I'm about to give my challenge. He says, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. Think about that. That's a weird phrase. Why, do we, why does God need our approval? Clearly, he doesn't. But we do. Here's what's interesting. It's not just that you'll know God's will. It's not just that you'll see what God's will is. You may even know before this process, but it's that you'll not only know it, but it will seem perfect and it will seem pleasing. See, we know that God's will is right. Most of us would agree with that. Anybody who's been to church for a while understands that God's will is right. But sometimes we think it's right like broccoli is right for some of you who don't like broccoli, right? It's good for you, but it's not good to you, you know? And, and it's like it's right, but it's not good. But God's will is right and good. It's like ice cream good. It's like chocolate good. It's right and good, but we don't always feel that. We don't always grasp that. 
But through this process, we actually come to a place where we recognize that God's will is pleasing and perfect. And we begin to say, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So before we get into the rest of the teaching, and as we move into the, the, the music this morning, I, I just want to challenge you. I want you to think about this process. Where are you in this process? What do you need as you worship this morning? What does this process do for you? What does this worship do for you in this process? This is why we gather together to worship, not just because it's something we do, not because it's a tradition, not just because we like each other. Those are all fine things. But the reason we gather together is to offer once again our bodies as a living sacrifice, to say again to God, you take me where you want. It's to recognize and let God change our mind so that we begin to see him differently and us differently. We forget so quickly, don't we? Our biggest frailty is we are the most forgetful people, species, ever. You know, God does a great thing, and the next minute we're like, well, that was two minutes ago. What you got now? You know, we just forget. And here we have a moment to come and remember and to remember. So, so as we go into the music this morning, view God's mercy. Keep it in your mind's eye. Let the music move you. Let the worship remind you of that. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. And I think it's interesting that in worship we, move, we use our bodies, don't we? We, we? we stand. Sometimes we clap. Sometimes we lift our hands. We use our vocal cords. We use our mouths. Our bodies are engaged in this process of worship. Do that knowingly this morning, intentionally. Offer it all to God and let God change your mind. And let God show you that his will is perfect and pleasing and it is right and good. Let's sing. Amen. So in fact, what we're going to talk about here in the next, the next section here, I'm going to give you four steps, four points, and I've made them all nice and short. Last week, the points I made were all like 10-word sentences, so this week, two words will be all you need to know for each point, in most cases, the first two words of, of each point. But before we even go to there, before we jump into that, I just want to remind you that if, if we lose track of what we just talked about, none of the rest of this will matter. It's offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's trusting him to change our minds and seeing where he brings that that makes a difference. It's becoming, as a church, what he's called us to be, not just the mere acts of what we do. I wanted to mention, I meant to mention it earlier and I forgot, but you know, one of the things that's really hard for us to do sometimes is just sit and be with Jesus. And yet the most informative and definitive times in the apostles' lives were the fact that they spent a lot of time just being with Jesus. Um, we have an opportunity coming up. Jerome's going to be leading a, a, a uh, what are we calling it? Commons prayer? Yeah, common prayer, prayer time of common prayer. We're really, as I understand it from talking with Jerome, the goal is just to have no agenda except to be with Jesus and let him do, let the Holy Spirit do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do and let Jesus do what Jesus wants to do in our lives. I think it's a great opportunity. That's going to be on April fourth so i just wanted to make sure you guys were aware of that but that's also crucial to going forward because anytime you give people four steps or four points it suddenly becomes the magic sort of formula to everything and i just want you to understand while these are the keys to surviving the zombie apocalypse and while these will be helpful to you in sowing life it starts with that offering to jesus it starts by walking with him having said that here's the first point the first two words are all you really need to remember everything. It's so life. So say that with me if you would. So life. Thank you very much. Let's do that one more time. That was kind of bad. Here we go. Perfect. All right. So life where you stand. Right. So life where you stand. A lot of us have a problem. The reason we don't so life 
is because we're waiting for that magic field in which to sow. We want to plant, the f- plant in some other field than God has given us right now. And maybe we call that field full-time ministry. Maybe we call that field uh, when I finally get married. Maybe we call that field when I graduate. Maybe we call that field when my boss is not a maniac anymore. Whatever we call that field, we're waiting for that moment before we actually sow life. But what if God actually wants us to sow life in the field which he's placed us? What if he wants us to just scatter seed right where we are? And you say, but the ground here is so hard, it's so rocky, and it just doesn't seem like I can do it. But what if God can do it? What if God is powerful enough and smart enough to actually put you where he wants you to sow life? And and we have to be clear, sowing life is not always exactly the same thing. It's about bringing Jesus to people. It's about bringing Christ to people. But that's not always exactly the same. Sometimes it might be sharing the gospel for sure. But sometimes you may be in a situation where sharing the gospel indeed is going to be on deaf ears, rocky ground. And maybe that isn't what God has you to do. Maybe sometimes sowing life is simpler. Maybe sometimes sowing life is buying a candy bar for the person behind you in the grocery store line who can't afford her own candy bar. You know, I, I love it. When I, I like Sonic because when I go to Sonic and I buy a drink or something, you've got that little thing right there. And after you pay for yours, it tells you how much the next person is going to have to pay. And so I can look at that and see if it's beyond my limits. <laughs> But if it's not, I just stick my card in and I just say, hey, I just paid for that person behind me and I drive off. They don't know who I am. I don't know who they are. But the opportunity is there. Maybe I've sowed life into that person. Maybe there's something that happened. Maybe sowing life has to do with simply doing the things God called you to do in your marriage, loving your wife as if she were your own life. Maybe it has to do with working hard at your job as if you're working unto the Lord. Maybe it has to do with being nice to your neighbor. These are all things we do to bring life to people, to bring Christ to people. And we need to get used to the idea that God is smart enough to have put us where he wants us. And we should sow life right where we stand. Don't wait for a magic moment or another day because maybe today's the day he's got for you to do it. There's an interesting verse Paul gives us, which is really a weird verse. It's, it's kind of strange. It doesn't sound, you know, we we want to change the world and we have an ambition to change the world. And here's what Paul says. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That's kind of weird. (laughs) I mean, a lot of us lead a quiet life. But did you know that Paul says that's a worthwhile ambition? He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And then he says, get this, you should mind your own business. Did he really just say that? Yeah, he really just said that. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. There's a lot we could go into in that verse. There's a lot there. But the main point here is that he says, look at where you are in your life now and mind that. Pay attention to that. Do what God has called you to do now at this moment, at this place. It's a lot easier sometimes to mind other people's businesses, right? But he says, you can sow life where you are. In the job, the mundane job, that mundane, toilsome job. In that family that isn't everything that you thought it would be when you first began it. In your relationships, whatever it is. Mind it. Sow life there. You know, this only makes sense to us if we believe that God is smart enough and powerful enough to actually know where we are and care where we are, and if he actually has a plan. There's an amazing 
verse, set of verses really in Ephesians 2. Many of you are probably familiar with 8 and 9, uh, which talks about the grace of God and the gospel. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. But some of you may not have read on to verse 10. And I just want to look at those. It says in Ephesians 2, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a beautiful verse that reminds us that the life we've received in Christ, we were rescued from the zombie apocalypse. It came not because we earned it, not because we worked for it, not because we deserved it, but because God is a God of mercy and grace. And it was a gift of God. But notice what it says. It goes on to verse 10. It says, for we are God's handiwork. Read masterpiece. That's really what that word means. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is amazing. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. What does God want us to do? What's the good work he's got for us? We spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. And sometimes we might even say, okay, I'm going to go off this way because that seems like a good thing. God, come with me. But what if God actually did apportion the parts? When he says each part should do its own work, what if he actually puts each part where it needs to be? What if he actually puts you in the position and the place you need to be so that you, as God's handiwork, you've been recreated in Christ through the cross. What if he recreated you to do good works? And what if he's already laid out the path and he's already placed landmarks, little good work moments that he's already prepared in advance for you to do? And what if when you hit that moment, it will fit you because God prepared in advance for you to do it and he recreated you to match it and it to match you? Wouldn't that be awesome? God would have to be really smart and really powerful to be like that but apparently he is. What if we can sow life right where we stand because God knows where we stand and because he's put that for you. He's put that path there for you. Sometimes it can be hard. I get it. But what if God wants to sow life through you right now in the relationships, in the circumstances, and the situation that you are in now? It's kind of amazing. Paul talks about being in prison. And at one point, he talks about being chained to guards 24 hours a day. And we understand this because we know from history that they would do this. They would chain a guard to a prisoner, a really important prisoner. They would chain a guard to him in shifts, actually 12-hour shifts. That sounds kind of hard for the guard, but that's what they would often do. And the guard would be chained to the prisoner, and then he would be relieved, and a new guard would be chained to the prisoner. And what's awesome is Paul talks about this moment when he's under this arrest, and he's being chained to guards regularly. And he says, it's amazing because it's like they are my prisoner. They are captive to me talking and sharing the gospel to them 12 hours a day. He just sees it as this amazing moment. He could be sitting there going, oh, I'm so restricted from the gospel. I can't even go out and do what God wants me to do. But he looks at where he is with one person and he says, this one person's not going anywhere. And he spends 12 hours, he shares the gospel with that guy, and that guy goes away and he gets the next guard, and he's like, oh my gosh, good luck. And he turns him over to Paul, and Paul you know, starts going on the next guy. And you can just imagine, you know, after a while, they're kind of like, whose shift is it with Paul? Oh my gosh, that guy talks like crazy. I cannot believe this guy. Let's just let him go. But it's amazing. It's like they, Paul saw them as prisoners. He saw that this was the place God had given him. And by the way, there's indication. It's not, it's not verified, but there's indication. We know that there were members of the palace guard that ultimately got saved. It's very possible it happened through this means. So here's Paul 
potentially he could say, I got nothing to offer. Here I am in prison. Other people got to do the work. What does he do? He writes letters that to this day we read that tell us of God's plans. And he preaches to the guards in such a manner that it affects the entire palace. But you see how he could have looked at that differently. But he sowed life where he stood. I don't know what, what prison guard you're chained to. But God does. So number one is so life. Everybody say that again. Number one is? Thank you very much. Number two is fight the fight. Everybody say fight the fight. Excellent. So number one? Number two? Excellent. Fight the fight by building up those around you. We want to fight the fight. We want to fight the spiritual battle. We want to win. We want to be, we're just saying, victory in Jesus. We want to be victorious. We want to do that. The thing is that we're told in Scripture we don't fight with the same weapons the rest of the world fights with. And sometimes we forget that. We don't know what it looks like. We're not sure what the spiritual battle is. And so sometimes we are losing spiritual battles because we don't even know that's where we're supposed to be fighting. The fight so often is given to us in terms of building up those around you. Not flattering them, not just pumping them up, but building them up, making them better. Encouraging them, edifying is the word Scripture uses. Building them up. Sometimes we're around people we don't want to build up. Can you imagine Paul wanted to build up the guards that were responsible for holding him prisoner? That's a weird thing. Who does that? People with Christ in them do that. We, sometimes we don't want to build people up because they don't deserve it. You know, it's interesting that verse we looked at where Paul says, mind your own business. Just a few verses before that, he shows us that he does not mean we should be isolated and unloving. That's not what he means by mind your own business. In fact, this is what he says leading up to that verse. He says, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And then he goes on to say, and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business. So the goal is love more and more, more and more and more and more. Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples by the rules you follow. No. Jesus will know that you are my disciples by the philosophies you hold. No. Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciple by how moralistic you are. Nope. Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Jesus didn't ever say anything he didn't mean. You agree with me on that? (laughs) That's amazing. That's a high premium on that, isn't it? That's a high premium. Romans 12 is a, one of my favorite chapters. It's, it's, we started it here when we talked about the, the sacrifice, but he goes on in Romans 12 to talk about the way we ought to live with each other in community, as a church, and also with others outside the church. And I'm not going to break this all down. I'm just going to read it to you because most of it is very, it's just beautifully written. It's self-explanatory, but I do want you to be alert as I read it to how much of it is about building up people who don't deserve to be built up. All right? This is what he says. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I will stop there for a moment. Is it always possible? No, Paul acknowledges that. Sometimes it doesn't depend on you. Some people will irrationally refuse to be at peace. But until you have reached that point where you can legitimately and honestly say, as, as far as it was as possible and as far as it depended upon me, I am at peace with everyone, then you need to go back and look at the verse again. There's way too many people in the church. Any, I don't mean this church in particular. I just mean the church. There's way too many people this verse is not true. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the spiritual battle, we want to win. We want to overcome evil with good. But we got to remember, sometimes it's this mundane kind of stuff. Paul says, overcome evil with good. How? How? By not being conceited. How? By blessing your enemies. How? By being at peace with all people. How? By living in harmony with others. How? By rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. This is how we fight the good fight. This is how we win. We want to be warriors for God, and so we should. And we want to win the spiritual battle, and so we should. And we want to fight the fight, and so we should. But every day, at every moment, when we walk out of these church walls, do we recognize it's those mundane moments, those things, those little things that God and Paul called us to that are exactly where the spiritual battle is. If you read the epistles, as you read through them, you will be amazed at how much time, we often skip over this stuff because it's not exciting, but how much time Paul spends talking about things we see as very mundane. Work for your boss and do a good job. Love your wife and don't let her feel unloved. Honor your husband and don't let him feel unloved. Be nice to your neighbor. Be kind to the people you meet on the street. These are the kinds of mundane things that Paul spends an awful lot of time talking about. And we don't understand. We forget that is where the spiritual battle is fought. You want to be a mighty warrior of faith and a mighty warrior of love and hope? It's in these moments that it happens. That's when it happens. So life right where you stand and fight the good fight by building others up. We tell our kids, be a builder not a destroyer. It's too easy, isn't it, to just destroy people like that. Be a builder. It's that simple. The things I tell my kids are the things Paul tells me, (laughs) are the things God tells us. We want something more glamorous. This is it, folks. This is how we bring life to the world. This is how we survive and thrive in the zombie apocalypse. We sow life right where we stand. We fight the good fight by building others up. Number one, Man, that was terrible. Number one? Oh, that was beautiful. Number two? Thank you. You guys are awesome. (laughs) And number three? Wow, it's like you've been here before. (laughs) Number three is don't stray. Everybody say don't stray. Thank you. Don't stray from the simple devotion to Christ. There's so many things we can stray from. I mean, there's so many things we can stray to is what I mean. And only one thing that we have to worry about straying from. The thing is, certainly big sins and temptations, those big moments, they can cause us to stray, but it's not usually that that's the big, the big danger. It's usually the things that look good are the danger. We can stray from a simple devotion to Christ by making our whole life about our church attendance. 
I want you to attend church regularly. If anything from these messages doesn't tell you we need each other, then I've missed something. But if your whole life becomes about devotion to church attendance or devotion to being the most biblically literate person in the room or to being the person who wears grooves in the floor of your wooden floor because you pray so much, I read about those people. I never could decide whether to believe them or not because I tried. (laughs) Maybe it's because my floors are concrete. Anyway, if it's your devotion to those things, that can lead you astray from a devotion to Christ as well. Certainly those are all good things. I would hope those would all become true of all of us, but because of our devotion to Christ, not to those things. He says, don't stray from the simple devotion to Christ. He says, I am afraid Interesting thing for Paul to say. The guy we just talked about who wasn't afraid in prison, he wasn't afraid of lions, he wasn't afraid in the shipwreck. All these times he's not afraid and now his confessional moment, he says, I am afraid. I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Don't stray. Here's the thing I want to tell you and I want to be really clear. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, If you offer your body as a living sacrifice to Christ and you walk that walk and you sow life right where you stand and you fight the fight by building others up, there will come a moment. It's inevitable. It's a law of the fallen world. There will come a moment where you will hit a crossroads and that crossroads will be this. Do I I go with my devotion to Christ or do I go with looking like I'm devoted to Christ? If you are worried about how other people see you, When you start to worry about looking good rather than being good, you will lose. We are more often led astray from our devotion to Christ by our desire to look like we're devoted to Christ than anything else I can think of. Jesus picked a lot on the Pharisees, and we stand there as we read them and go, go get them, because we see the Pharisees as very, very different from us. But guys, the Pharisees are us. The Pharisees were the religious group of the time. They were the people that went to church on a regular basis. They were the committed followers. They were the people that others looked to with respect and said, that's a man of God. That's who the Pharisees were. But they had become so used to that image that that became their devotion. They became devoted to the idea of looking righteous. And Jesus, in his passion and his love for them, wanted to break through that killer of self-righteousness to lead them to true righteousness. Some of them listened. Most of them didn't. Don't be led astray from a simple devotion to Christ. Sometimes life gets confusing. Yes? Amen? Sometimes God gets confusing. Amen? Can we admit that? Sometimes we don't know. We're like, what does this mean? What am I supposed to do with this? Don't stray from the simple devotion to Christ. That's what it's about. Let's have the music team come up. So number one was? Number two. Number three? So as we sing a little bit, as we worship a little bit more here with these guys, I want you to think about that simple devotion to Christ. Lay everything aside just for a few moments and, and, and think about that. Let God challenge you where in these three steps, we have one more we'll give right after these songs, but where in these three steps of sowing life where you stand fighting the fight by building others up. And don't stray from the simple devotion to Christ. Where is it that God is putting his thumb right now? Where is he telling you, you need to change? You need to be willing to sow where you stand or you need to be building others up 
or you need to be recommitting your devotion to Christ, reclaiming your first love. Where do you stand? Which of those three does God want you to think about to press forward in? And as you sing these songs, give that to God and let him change it. Amen. I just one more point I want to make here. Uh, this evening, you can have a seat if you'd like, but I'm going to have these guys stay up here because this will be short. And we're going to do one more song after I'm done. So number one was? So right. Number two? Number three? Good. Number four? Yes. Is find the divine appointment. And if you go with the first two words, you won't get very far because that's just find the. Yeah, that's not good. So yes, he's correct. We're going to go with divine appointments. Everybody say divine appointment. See, here's the bottom line. If everything we've just shared is true, and obviously I think it is, I think it's scriptural and I think it's actual, I think it's real. If all this is true, then think about what it means to have a church, a local church, a group of people, Paragon. Think about what it means for Paragon to build itself up, to reach maturity, for all of us to be discipling, to be working in that process of discipleship, making disciples out of the people that are here so that as we go out from here into our lives, into our families, into our jobs, into our neighborhoods and into our communities, that we can actually sow life right where we are, that we can fight the fight by building other people up and that we don't stray from that simple devotion to Christ. Doesn't that mean that we should be anticipating at every moment that there just might be a divine appointment for us around the corner? Doesn't that mean that each moment there may be more to what's happening than we can see? That God may have put us there. I have no idea the number of times that I've put in my card and paid for someone behind me if anything has happened. But I'd like to think of the possibility that one day there's a gal who just realized she lost her purse. She's ordered food and she's embarrassed, but she's stuck in that line, you know? So she pulls up to the window and she's ready to say, I can't pay for this. And the person says, hey, that person in front of you just paid for it. Divine appointment. You just don't know. But God does. Let him apportion the parts. Let him show you where life needs to be brought. The apostles were regularly and consistently confused by who Jesus decided to help. The woman at the well was beyond them. In fact, the story of the woman at the well, Jesus sends them away before he begins talking to her. He says, go get me food. So they leave because he knew they would be in the way. But when they come back, he's still there. And they say, we brought you food. And he says, I'm not hungry. <laughs> he says it, read it. He says, my food is to do the will of my father. I'm sure they're like, that's not what you said when you sent us to get the burgers. You know, what's the deal here? But he wanted them to see that this Samaritan woman, a double whammy, by the way, that this Samaritan woman was worth Jesus's sowing of life. Because what happens in the story, a lot of us miss after that, is the apostles and Jesus go into the town and they watch all these people come to know and accept the Lord Jesus through that woman. And for the apostles, that must have been an eye-opening moment. There are divine appointments for you. There's a, ver there's a chapter, a passage in Ecclesiastes. We're not going to read through it all, but I'm just going to show it on the screen and remind you what it says. It says there's a time for everything. There's a season for each of these things that God knows what he's doing. There's a plan and there's a time and there's a season and he walks through all these different options and all these different things that happen and all these things that have the time and the plan. And then he says, what do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. The burden that God has laid on the human race is this. He has made everything beautiful in its time and he has also set eternity in the human heart. 
Every human being we encounter has this burden, this burden of knowing what beauty is, seeing a little bit of it where they are, but knowing there's something so much better. There's an eternity that's put in their heart. Isn't that amazing? Every human being has this grasp of perfection and love and beauty and justice that is just in their heart, and so much of life just fails. (laughs) But we have an opportunity as those who have had the revelation of who Jesus is and what he's provided. We have the opportunity to share a little bit of that light and that life with them, to sow life for them. One thing I was thinking from that last song, it's a little bit of a, uh, just I didn't share this in any other things, but the song we just sang, Holy, Holy, Holy. Do you know that, that phrase, Holy, 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 what that means to the Hebrews? Here's what's interesting about this. First of all, the word holy itself talks about the, the amazing apartness of God. All that beauty, all that perfection, all that ideal, all that love, all that everything that is never quite enough here on this earth, That's what God is. He's a part in a beautiful and mysterious and magnificent way. But there's another thing that happens in the Hebrew language, and that's that when they want to emphasize something, instead of using an adjective, they will often simply repeat the word. There's a story in the Old Testament where it talks about someone falling into a pit, but they want to say that he fell into a very deep pit. So what they say is he fell into a pit pit, literally. To repeat something twice is to say that it's really big. You never repeat something three times. And then in the Old Testament, Isaiah says, They were singing, holy, holy, holy. Every human being on earth feels that urge for holy. We have divine appointments to help them see it. You may not understand why God would use you or Paragon to do such amazing things. I don't know why God took a bowl of salt to bring life to the land. But this is what he chose.